Good morning. My name is Julia. We're going to read from Mark chapter 1, verse 16, to Mark chapter 2, verse 12. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, "'What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God.'" Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, 
Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him, they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Morning, everyone. In case we haven't met, my name's Ben. Uh, I have uh, the joy of opening God's Word to us this morning. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open in Mark, uh, the passage we've just had uh, read. Uh, the words for scriptures that I refer to outside of Mark will be on the screen, but uh, not for Mark, so have them in front of you. Uh, let me lead us briefly in prayer and then uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that we can gather together in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to consider your word uh, to us. Please help us to set aside hindrance and distraction, that we will concentrate, that we'd rejoice and tremble at your word and be built up into the likeness of Jesus as we do so. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, no doubt many, if not all of us in this room, have uh, one time come across uh, the age-old saying, before you criticise a person... Uh, you should walk a mile in their shoes. If you know me and my juvenile sense of humour, you'll also know that I appreciate the, the witty response to that saying, which is, yes, that's a very good idea. Before you criticise someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you do criticise them, you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. However, juvenile humour aside, the sentiment is actually very good. It makes sense that if you want to actually know someone that you can somehow put yourself into their experience as much as you can. Uh, you can know what it's like to think and feel what they think and feel. Uh, I say that because our world, and sadly often sometimes even our church, can forget that Christianity is ultimately about a person. Uh, not a set of re religious propositions, as important as they are, but about 
a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the name Christianity derives. Uh, Wherever you are on the spectrum of belief, from someone who's maybe not yet even a follower of Jesus, through to someone who's been walking in faith for for 50 plus years, uh, it always is the case that finding out about a person is frankly more enjoyable and and sort of intriguing than finding out about a set of ideas. I remember as uh, uh, when I was very young, sometimes uh, we go to dinner at this uh, little pizza restaurant and rather than having the kitchen kind of shut up out the back, it was like right in the front there was this big pane glass window and the dude was kneading the dough and then turning it and spinning it and flipping it, right? You know, anyone ever been to a restaurant like that? Are they still a thing? And uh, if you'd have said to, you know, six-year-old me, right, you can learn about pizza from reading in a recipe book or you can look at this guy, right? Of course I would choose the guy. It's just, just it's more engaging, it's more fun and it's intriguing and I... I I, I say that because from finding out about Christianity in the first place, all the way through to being spurred on the faith that you've had for 50 years, uh, walking a mile in the shoes of Jesus is helpful and also enjoyable. And it so happens that today we get to do that. We actually get to do more than that. We, We get to not only walk a mile, I suppose, we get actually a whole day in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, You probably didn't catch it as it was read, but uh, Mark's making that really clear to us that we're spending a day with him. In verse 21 of chapter 1, it starts on a Saturday morning, which is what Jews would have understood by the phrase when the Sabbath came. Point of order, the Sabbath actually starts Friday night, but when you say when the Sabbath came, that's Saturday morning. Uh, and then from verse uh, 29, you've got uh, Jesus and his uh, newly employed disciples having their sort of Saturday lunch at, uh, at Simon's place. And then from verse 32, you've got the, the market that it's evening after sunset where, where uh, hordes of people are now flocking to, to Jesus. And then a bit later in verse 35, you've got early in the morning while it was still dark, just before the next day, Jesus is going to pray to his heavenly father, presumably about what's going to happen the following day. Uh, Given that just before this, and I hope you heard about this from Jono last week, uh, we've learned that the world-changing movement called the Kingdom of God has sort of started to take root Uh, well, it follows that a day in the life of Jesus is kind of like a day learning about what this movement is, what the kingdom of God is, and and, and what it means for Jesus to be the one who who heads this movement. But just before we get into it, it's helpful to notice uh, who gets to see the day in the life of Jesus. Uh, Look in your Bibles from verse 16, Just a little prelude to the day. Verse 16, chapter 1, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, i.e. normal, Joe Blow, regular folks. Verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Uh, If you're my age or older, you might have a song that comes to mind that once upon a time was sung. Actually, for my curiosity, how many people know it? I will make you... One, two, three, yeah, gee. Sunday school, we've got to, we've got to bring back the oldies. Yeah, right. Uh, verse 18, at once they left their nets and they followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, and what do you know? Preparing their nets. They're also regular Joe blogs, tradies, just normal folk. 
And verse 20, without delay, he called them. They left their father's ebony in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Basic gist is that those who Jesus brings to this eternity-changing movement that God is inaugurating called the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, are ordinary, unimpressive people. And uh, if they get to spend the day in the life of Jesus learning about the kingdom... So we, being frankly ordinary and unimpressive people, get to do likewise. So whoever you are, and wherever you're at in your relationship with God, let's enjoy spending a day in the life of Jesus and seeing what it teaches us about this movement that God has begun and that will continue into eternity. Point one on your outline, if you're a note taker, Jesus goes about advancing the kingdom of God by teaching what it is about. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And of course, that begs the question, well, in what sense is Jesus teaching somehow distinguished from what they normally had? In what sense is it authoritative? Well, we know that his teaching is about the kingdom of God. If you just look back a couple of verses to, to chapter 1, verse 14, 15, you get the summary of what Jesus is basically teaching, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news, right? That, that's the content of his teaching. But as the king of that kingdom, Jesus is able to give very powerful illustrations of that truth, that the kingdom of God really is at hand. You see, if God's kingdom advances, it's only right that you would expect the things that are opposed to his kingdom, i.e. spiritual and, and physical sickness and, and, and brokenness, the effects of our fallenness, you would expect those things to begin to come undone. So as he does his teaching, he demonstrates the validity of it, I think, with authority. We get an example of it, which Mark records for us from the next verse. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? <laughs> Answer, yes. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him, the impure spirit. Shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, what is this a new teaching and with authority? We, the, 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 the new teaching is the kingdom of God is at hand, but he does it with authority. He can demonstrate the validity of this by literally showing that the kingdom of, 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 of the devil is coming undone. Verse 28, news about him, as you can imagine, therefore, spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, like I said, we already know the basic gist of Jesus' teaching. Verse 15, repent, believe the kingdom of God is his hand. But here Jesus illustrates the truth of his claim by showing that the kingdom of God truly is at hand. The kingdom of Satan, under whom all sinners naturally reside, is indeed being overthrown. Now, I've got no doubt, by the way, that the content and the manner of Jesus' teaching could also easily and rightly be described as authoritative. I mean, he is the divine son of God, right? He actually wrote the Old Testament text that would have been in the synagogue, right? And he could proclaim, in other gospels, he does, he reads out a text and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. But that Jesus can prove his claim that the kingdom of God has commenced 
and he can do it by supernatural example, is, I think, what it means to say that Jesus teaches with authority. And of course, it's not just demonic spirits, not just the supernatural, but also the physical sickness, the physical effects of our fallenness and depravity that Jesus demonstrates are overcome by God's kingdom. So, verse 29, uh, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went and uh, went to her, took her by the hand. He didn't have to take a hand, but he did. He wants to make this really clear, right? And help her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. And no, it's not just, oh, here's the one that can cook really well. Jesus, you better fix her up, right? That's not what it was. It, it's, it's showing that what in that culture would have been a tremendous honour, that her healing was so thorough and complete that she went about doing what she would normally have done in, 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 that, in that situation. It, it shows the the completeness, uh, the fullness and the immediacy of the healing that Jesus gave. So as those ex-fishermen come disciples, spend this day in the life of Jesus, they saw, and we now through them get to see, that he is definitely not about advancing the kingdom of God and that he does it through the teaching or the proclaiming of the good news that God's kingdom is at hand. The illustrations he gives verify and validate and back up that teaching, but of course those illustrations are out of this world, kind of literally, they're supernatural healing, and so they're very, very, very popular. Hence the next verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, given he's just got rid of demons and sickness. So all, all they flocked to him. The whole town gathered at the door, verse 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he will not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And uh, sorry to let you down, but we're actually going to find out a little bit later in Mark's gospel why he doesn't want the demons to reveal his full identity. That's a tease. You have to keep coming back, right? But for now... Our day in the life of Jesus has shown that the kingdom of God is real, that it involves the overthrow of the effects of our sinfulness. Jesus has been healing all kinds of sickness, driving out demons such that the crowds are flocking to him from the whole town. And that's why it probably comes as something of a surprise when we realise that Mark is going to tell us, or is telling us, that this day in the life of Jesus was not a good day, that it was actually, in many ways, an unsuccessful day. The first day these fishermen come, disciples get to witness Jesus, it's unsuccessful, it's not good. We will see why that is as, point two on your outline, Jesus now goes on to show his disciples that the priority for kingdom work and kingdom advancing is preaching. Reading me from verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Well, of course everyone's looking for him. He can heal their sicknesses and get rid of the demons. You can imagine how desperate and how excited these disciples, new disciples of Jesus would be to, to see him keep on doing his healings and his exorcisms. They're day one and they are on the winning ticket. This guy is the guy who's going to revolutionise the world and we're the ones he's chosen. Joe Blog, average like us and we're with him. Of course they, what are you doing Jesus? Get back and do the whole healing thing. 
which is why it's a shock that he replies the way he does. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons, i.e. preaching and with authority. Jesus shocks his disciples by showing that the signs, the, the illustrations, aren't the big deal. It's the teaching that matters, not the illustrations, no matter how powerful and validating they may be, which, of course, in Jesus' case, they're, they're amazingly powerful. In fact, Jesus choosing to leave at this high point implies that these people of Capernaum, by and large, have not repented and have not believed. They have not embraced the kingdom of God. The Gospel writer Matthew recorded later on what Jesus ultimately concluded about Capernaum, the city that he's in. I'll put it on the screen for you. You can have a read with me from Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. And Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. And he goes on condemning them for a while. Then verse 23, here it is, and you, Capernaum, this is the town that Jesus is in, uh, in Mark 1. You, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Those who form the kingdom of God, the, the people that are in the kingdom of heaven, I suppose, are those who repent and believe the gospel. They listen to the teaching. It's not be miraculously healed and you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The real kingdom of God advances through the preaching and teaching of the gospel not through the supernatural healings and miracles that were designed to reinforce that teaching. Now, don't mishear me. Don't for a second think that I'm down on miracles or supernatural stuff. God can and very often does do all kinds of extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous work. I pray for supernatural healing on, on many occasions for many people and have done and will continue to do so. And there certainly will be complete physical and spiritual healing on the day when God's kingdom comes to earth and operates as it currently does in heaven. That's one of the most wonderful things about being a follower of Jesus, by the way, knowing that the day is coming where there'll be no more sickness, mourning, crying, pain, anything like that. But that is not where things are at now. Uh, in my holidays, I uh, went to, well, it's not really holidays, it's sort of work. Well, it's kind of work, half-half holiday. I went to CMS Summer School, which was wonderful. And I had the great joy of, um, I was hanging out with my, one of my friends, and he introduced me to his brother and sister-in-law. It's this young couple, right? Guy and a girl, not married long, and uh, she's pregnant with their, their first baby. And she 
has uh, cerebral palsy, right? Uh, I don't know much about cerebral palsy, but like she walks a bit like this, whatever, and, and you can, like, she talks normally, but you can sort of tell that there, there's something, she's physically afflicted by something, right? Uh, but she's an absolutely wonderful lady, and we were just having a wonderful conversation, you know, thoroughly switched on Christian, and they're talking about their excitement of the, the new baby. But halfway through the conversation, uh, she talked about one of the great difficulties she has, uh, which is that often she's, she'll be walking through the, the, the Parramatta Mall, and she said more often than once in two months, so once in two months at minimum, someone will come up to her, a random stranger, and offer to pray for her healing in, in, the, in the thinking that, that this lady is obviously not a Christian, but if I pray for her, she'll be here, well, then she'll, she'll be a follower of Jesus, right? Uh, and... Um, the reason she was talking about it, she said, I'm pregnant, I'm a little bit more moody now, I wonder what I'm going to say the next time it happens, right? These people do this thing. Uh, but it's extraordinary, A, how theologically ridiculous it is, it's the teaching of the prosperity gospel that, that equates kind of, you know, physical healing with entry into the kingdom. It's the very thing that Jesus rails against here. But B, also the inappropriateness of that. It's in effect saying, lady, you suck. You know the reason you're a cripple is you don't have enough faith. If you had proper faith, then you wouldn't be like the way you are, right? That's in effect the teaching that, that, that is being sort of, you know, pushed upon this poor woman. It is actually easy, and it continues to be the case to this day, for people to be so invested in the supernatural miracles that they miss the very point that Jesus is making here about the kingdom of God that is actually about repentance and belief in the good news. In fact, you can be so invested, and sadly there are people like this, you can be so invested in the supernatural miracles precisely because you are not invested in hearing the good news, repenting and believing. That is Jesus' own summary of what happens here at Capernaum. Thankfully, Jesus' ministry lasted more than one day. And the disciples got to learn more of the character of the kingdom of God after this unsuccessful, though spectacular, time in Capernaum. In the next two sections of Mark, Jesus shows them, and therefore us, how it is that the kingdom of God actually does take root in people's lives, how it is made possible for people to repent and believe the good news and what it means when they do. Point three on your outline, Jesus shows us that for those who do enter the kingdom of God, it's because he removes the cause of their fallenness. Not necessarily the effects, but he removes the cause of their fallenness. Look with me from verse 40, chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, that word there, clean, is really important. If you know your Old Testament law, you'll know that this man, on account of his leprosy, was isolated from people and isolated from God. He couldn't approach God's temple, and if other people approached him, he would have literally had to yell out, unclean, unclean, you know, go away. And uh, he doesn't ask to be healed. It's not... Jesus, are you willing to heal me? No, it's can you make me clean? In other words, I, this guy switched on. I want to be reinstated with both God and neighbour according to the Levitical law. I want to be ceremonially clean. I want to be in fellowship with God and man. Verse 41, Jesus was indignant. That is, Jesus is so willing to make him right 
with God and right with others. That, that, that frankly, he, he looks with anger and disgust at even the possibility of a suggestion that, that he might not be willing to make this man clean. And so continuing verse 41, he reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now that's astounding because normally whoever touches the guy with leprosy would themselves become unclean. He'd be contaminated with ceremonial uncleanness. But here, because there is absolutely nothing impure about Jesus... The effects of the fall do not apply to him. There's nothing that Jesus should ever be isolated from God or isolated from neighbour. And so he remains unaffected, even though he cleanses the leper. That is, until he doesn't. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. In other words, go and show people that you're now legitimately able to be back in fellowship with God and neighbour, according to the Jewish law. But, rather understandably, wrongly, but understandably, he does something else. Verse 45, instead, he went out and began to talk freely And literally, it's the same word as proclaim that Jesus was doing. He went out to proclaim the good news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. To put it simply, Jesus traded places with the leper. Though perfectly clean, Jesus was yet, in a way, you could say, cut off from God and cut off from others in order that this man could be reinstated with God and neighbour. And of course, uh, this is a wonderful picture, is it not, of what's at the heart of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that you and I, in effect, are like the leper, we have no claim to be in fellowship with God and therefore are not at peace with neighbour. But Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, undergoes that condition. He actually faces the isolation, the suffering, the wrath that comes from God against all sin when he dies on the cross so that undeserving people like you and I can be reinstated with God and men. Now, of course, this is all to do at this point with ceremonial cleanness. Even leprosy is an outsider, it's an external disease that you can see. The Old Testament law is often more to do with symbol than the reality that it points to. But it does make us wonder, can Jesus do not only was required to make us ceremonially clean, but actually in reality to free us from the penalty and the consequence of sin? And the staggering answer is, yes, he can. Which is why Mark records what he does next. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, he's gone back, given them another chance, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Noticed that basically when he left off Capernaum, that was the, all the people were crowding and he got out of there and he comes back, it's still the same and they're probably all expecting healing but continuing verse 2, and he preached the word to them. Verse 3, didn't stop people from, from wanting the healing and, and rightly so. Verse 3, some men came bringing him a paralysed man carried by four of them since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And one of my favourite Christian comics out there is uh, 
this, you got this picture of all guys digging through a roof and there's this one dude in a house just sitting on his lounge and all the crumbs are coming, the, 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 and he looks up and, and, and they look down at him and they go, oh, sorry, wrong house, <laughs> go next door. Once you got that in your head, you can't get out. Anyway, when Jesus saw their faith collectively, that includes the guy on the mat, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I suspect we're all familiar with this part of the Bible, but uh, nonetheless, we need to appreciate the extraordinary sort of, you know, intensity of emotion that would have happened at this point. Everyone would expect that Jesus, who they've seen already heal heaps of people, would say, son, get up, take your mat and walk and he would be healed. But remember, Jesus is on about, and he's already made the point to his followers that he's on about teaching. He wants repentance and belief. It's the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's, the, the, the miracles are to, to support that, not the other way around. And so Jesus, he's teaching the word of God to them. He says what this guy's greatest need is in order to enter the kingdom is not actually a miraculous healing. It's that his sins can be forgiven. Jesus sees the greatest need that people have. But that presents a problem, verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that is a, actually a fair question. Uh, if, you know, I walk and kick Gavin the sins uh, because I'm really angry and then I, I, I say to Fletcher afterwards, Fletcher, can you please forgive me for that, right? There's something wrong and confused about that. The one I've offended is the one to whom I need to be reconciled, I need to seek forgiveness. Now, all sin is ultimately against God, and therefore it's really only God's prerogative to pronounce forgiveness for sin. Can Jesus speak on God's behalf? Is he so, I, I guess, related or connected or, or having the authority of God that he can actually speak for God? Well, we continue verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, <laughs> which is hilarious because it's like saying immediately Jesus did the thing that only God himself can do. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Obviously, the latter thing is easier. To legitimately forgive sins is even more extraordinary and miraculous than healing a cripple. But that said, the healing would be visible, would be tangible, people could see it. Hence, it could serve as yet another powerful illustration of the claim that Jesus is making, that he has the authority to, to legitimately forgive sin. And so he goes ahead and does it. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I can do the harder thing. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this, which is good and sort of not quite good, both at the same time. It's wonderful, they're praising God. Praise God, I'm glad this happened. But rather than marvelling at what they saw, we've never seen anything like this, did they also listen to what Jesus was teaching? Did they come to the point of believing that Jesus does indeed have the authority to forgive sins such that they also turned back to God in repentance and believed the good news? We're not told. 
But in any event, it is clear that God's kingdom is one in which the root cause of our fallenness is dealt with. That's what Jesus demonstrates by the healing of this paralysed man. And of course, the other big thrust in what we're looking at is that the kingdom of God advances by gospel preaching and teaching. And that makes me feel a bit happy and validated because I'm not very good at healing paralysed people, but I can preach and teach and therefore advance the kingdom. I'll say a little bit more about uh, uh, this point and draw out some implications for us, uh, but firstly, it really does make sense to ask, well, have you had your greatest need be met? I don't know the hearts of everyone in this room. We might not have even met before. Uh, there are many who heard Jesus' teaching. They heard Jesus' call to enter the kingdom and who saw the truth of what he was teaching confirmed in his powerful miracles who yet failed to enter the kingdom of God. They will go down to Hades, he said, rather than be lifted into eternity with him. That was the case then and it continues to be the case now. Are you someone who has had your greatest need met? Have you repented, turned back to God, found the forgiveness of your sins that only Jesus can offer and lived for the kingdom rather than you? I'm pleased to say it's actually really simple to know that you can have your greatest need met and become a part of this kingdom. It requires only two things, really, repenting and believing. Have you repented of your sin? That is, said, God, I turn back to you, I turn away from living my own life my own way. And you believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? That is, yes, I believe he is able to speak for God because he is the Son of God. Uh, if you haven't done that, for goodness sake, do it before God decides he will sort of culminate that kingdom by having Jesus return and having his authority in heaven exercised exactly as it is on earth. For us, the church, who are living in and for God's kingdom, a really important thing to, to remember is that there's no such thing as living in what I'm going to call parallel to the kingdom. This is our big problem. See, it's not that God's great movement of establishing the kingdom is sort of here... And my life is kind of here and occasionally I dip in to kingdom living, right? It's not like, oh, well, I've, here's my bit. I've got my job, I've got my family, I've got my education or whatever. And, and oh, there's the Jesus bit. Oh, I better show up at growth group and, and, and church, you know? Like a, and so I'm kind of like living my life and periodically kingdom life. That, that, the kingdom just doesn't operate like that, right? It's as drastic as going from paralysed to walking. It's, it's as life-changing and, and, and all-encompassing as something like that. Uh, so when it comes to things like, well, with my family, with my job, at every single point of the way, the question is, well, how do I live the kingdom life in that context? How do I use my work to advance the kingdom? How does what I do with my time uh, uh, support and promote the proclamation of the gospel. That's the way people in the kingdom live. And also, as Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom does grow through uh, a proclamation, uh, we call that the ministry of the word. Well, it makes sense that there's something, how do I put this, distinctive, about the ministry of word and prayer compared to all other ministry. 
This idea came under attack about the last sort of 20 years. I know all ministries are the same and some people have sort of like word kingdom building ministry and other people have uh, To put it really, really delicately, that's rubbish. Uh, the, <laughs> the word of God is the means by which God has chosen to build and establish his kingdom and all people, all followers of Jesus are engaged in word ministry. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would later say that we all have this treasure in jars of clay. I know we're broken and we've got issues, right? But every one of you is like a letter that, that, that sort of says to the world, Oi, Jesus Christ is Lord, repent and believe the good news. There are varying degrees to which we, in our, you know, sort of day-to-day lives and, and pragmatic circumstances, uh, uh, read out that letter, but it's there with every single believer. And so it's only ever always right that as followers of Jesus, we ask, well, what's our part in the advancing of his kingdom, just like those fishermen probably would have been asking. They had the great joy of learning what the ministry is like, what Jesus is like. Well, we've had that great joy even more than them. It's only ever always right for us to ask what's our part to play. There are Christians through the ages who have done things like, you know, I'll work one day less a week, take a pay cut so that I can teach scripture to the children in the local primary school. I am qualified to work as a, a high up IT tech but that work makes me in a room with only one other person day and night, whereas if I become a hairdresser, I can speak to people day and night randomly and I'll do that for the sake of the gospel, right? There are all sorts of ways in which people live for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus that our world thinks is stupid, but that from the perspective of eternity is absolutely wonderful. I hope this year is a year where you think about how can I be invested in the ministry of word and prayer with whatever God has given me. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has actually taken away the root cause of our alienation from you and our lack of peace with one another. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news, the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's made it possible for us to be in right relationship with you. We thank you that he demonstrated the truth of that good news and even continues to do so through profound, supernatural, miraculous stuff. But Heavenly Father, may we not be so hard-hearted as to embrace the supernatural at the expense of the good news. Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.